Thank you, Eric. <laughs> what a great ministry, huh? Boy, any kind of a ministry stays that faithful for that many years. Um, it's something to be a part of, and there's just nothing like getting the Scriptures out to people. That's always the bottom line, isn't it? So, well, good morning to you. As you can see, I lived through that half marathon last Sunday. It was, uh, Camille and I had such a marvelous time with our kids and grandkids and Donna Cummings who jumped in and uh, was a part of what we did. And uh, I'll just sum up the 13 miles by saying this. Um, I don't know if the family appointed my son Jesse and my son-in-law Luke to keep their eye on me or not, but what happened was uh, they stuck with me the whole way. And I kept telling them, just go ahead. I'm, I'm fine, just go ahead. And uh, they refused to, so I'm suspicious about whether they were assigned the responsibility to watch me. And so basically the way the race played out was they talked the entire 13 miles and I tried to breathe. <laughs> and that's kind of the way it worked. So it was a marvelous, marvelous time. And uh, it's just always good to press boundaries, isn't it? It's just always good, especially in our discipling of people. It's always good to press the boundaries and see what God might do through our feeble, humble efforts. And uh, so, to that end, I just want to encourage you to take that card that's in your bulletin and uh, invite some people to come next Sunday. As Phil and Erica, I'll be interviewing them. We'll be walking through the gospel with people. And just see this as a part of your loving people who do not know that there's one who loves them and died for them and wants them to live forever in he heaven and miss hell. And, um, and so just would encourage you to press some boundaries and make some maybe gutsy calls. Uh, there's a bunch more of these in the back here. If you just want to walk your neighborhood, uh, whatever you might want to do. Phil and Erica are up in the mountains this morning part of our marriage retreat, and uh, pray for those couples even as they come back. So tomorrow, uh, next Sunday morning is part of a full Sunday. So if some of you miss uh, the way we used to do church 20 years ago when you spent all day Sunday at church, next Sunday is your time. <laughs> it's, it's the deal, man. Uh, we have new Sunday school classes beginning uh, at 9 o'clock to equip us in the faith, and then uh, going to interview uh, Phil and Erica uh, during our service, and then we got the TK Burger that will be here, and uh, the church is providing, I should say those of us that contribute to the work of the ministry at Calvary are providing food for everybody that will be here, and then uh, five to six, uh, you, we get to eat again. I mean, this sounds so New Testament. Uh, so just come back at five, bring something with you to share with other people, and we'll eat again, and then we'll come in here for our pulse check uh, from 6 to 7.15. If you're unfamiliar with that, that's really kind of where we do family kind of business, and, um, and so it'll be a, a special time. This particular meeting is when we look forward to 2020, and we'll be affirming elders as well as deacons as well as our moderator. It's earlier than normal uh, so that we don't 
conflict with JAMPAC and lose those of you that are leading and working in JAMPAC. And so we've moved it up even earlier. And we'll be laying out the 2020 budget. And I don't know what else. There's be some other stuff that we do as we spend that time together. Um, so anyway, just really encourage you just to say next Sunday, we're going to hang out with church family. And uh, we're even going to bring some people who don't know Christ and uh, let them hear what God has done. If you're at a place to follow the Lord in baptism or you're discipling somebody who is, we will have a baptism next Sunday morning as well. And uh, the craziest thing has happened to me, um, one of the craziest things, I mean, God's always doing crazy things with what, considering what he's got to work with. Um, but a guy that... Uh, a family, a guy who and his family, God literally miraculously dropped on our doorstep probably 25 years ago, and Camilla and I had a chance to disciple them into a relationship with Christ, and they were a mess. I mean, they were a total disaster. And it's miraculous how they even ended up here through people who had been here, who were now in Santa Maria, and somehow they made contact, and they said, go to Huntington Beach, and it's just a bizarre story. Nino Parco. And some of you may remember Nino. He's so clueless about church. It was just fun to have him in here because he just thought you left whenever you wanted to to go get a cup of coffee and whatever. He'd sit right up here, and then he'd just walk out, get a cup of coffee, and come back. He had no idea how to behave in church. Don't we want those people here? Yeah, I was one of those at one point. And, uh, and so anyway, he's been living not following the Lord in baptism all these years. And so he's going to fly in from Texas, and I'll have a chance to baptize him on Sunday. Uh, I've chewed him out for waiting for so long, but late obedience is better than no obedience. And, uh, and so it'll be a joy to have them and his new wife. His uh, wife, Mary, that uh, they were together then, uh, took her own life a few years after we had a chance to spend time with them, and I really do think she did know the Lord, so anyway. So anyway, that's next Sunday, but this morning we get to jump back into Hebrews here, and so let's uh, grab a copy of the scriptures and turn over to Hebrews chapter 9, chapter 9, and um, as we've been going through the book of Hebrews, I, I, it just kind of struck me that one of one of the great beauties, as well as one of the challenges of going through the book of Hebrews, is it makes so many connections to the Old Testament. Why that's a challenge is that most of us are not real familiar with the Old Testament apart from favorite stories, or maybe just favorite passages of Scripture like Psalm 23 or other places. And most of us especially are not real familiar with all of the details of, of the Old Covenant. And so one of the great challenges is, is we have to educate ourselves on a lot that's in the Old Testament. Now, while that's a challenge, it's also a, a beauty because what we see in more detail, maybe even more detail and repetition than we want, is the intricacies of God's redemptive work of salvation. You know, so often we, we share the gospel in a very appropriate way, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, it is in some ways a truncated gospel 
you know, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, or follow me, uh, whatever it might be, without appreciating the thousands, maybe millions of details that underpin that simple declaration, and, and missing the beauty of why you and I can sing what we have sung this morning, and how we can stand in a right relationship with God. Because there's millions of details that had to come together for that to be true. And the book of Hebrews just kind of mines some of these details. And, uh, and so we just, we just continue to look at it and trust the Word to do that. Now, one of the beauties of looking at these details is that as followers of Christ, there's, there's just kind of a drift that happens in our Christian life, unless we really fight against it. And that drift is we become numb to the commonness of sin and this amazing, miraculous work of what God has done to pay for our sins so we can have a right relationship with Him. We just become numb to it. Our sin is horribly gross. Our sin is so wicked and repulsive and stinks to high heaven. And we're going to see this graphically portrayed in the passage that we're going to read in just a minute. And to the extent that we understand the grossness of our sin, then we appreciate the grace of God. Then we say, wow, God. And then all of a sudden, Jesus becomes the main thing in our life. And telling others about him becomes the compulsion that we have. And, uh, and so it's so good to go through these details. It's so good to be reminded of the beauties of what God has done on our behalf and so we're going to read uh, chapter 9, verses 15 down through verse 23. And uh, let me pray for us before we read it. So let me, let's pray together and then we'll read it. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is your voice from heaven to reveal things about yourself, reveal things that we need to know, that there would be no other way to know. And we thank you that it's not just an educational experience, but your word is living and active and, and it does things in our minds and in our emotions and in our wills that nothing else can do. And I'm sure grateful that you're the God that knows what each one of us need this morning, and we're in different places. But you know that. And you can use this communal reading of your word and looking at it to make very specific applications. And so we look to you for that, and boy, are we grateful that you're competent to do that, and it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, beginning in verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 9. For this reason, he, that's the Lord Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. 
For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. For it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these." Well, that is the word of the living God. Let me walk you through kind of the flow of it, beginning there in verse 15, which obviously builds off of the previous verses there that emphasize that Christ, who was the one without blemish, is able to cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God through his blood. Now, in verse 15, it tells us really how those who lived under the Old Covenant, literally all those in the Old Testament, if we want to broaden it out, how they were saved. Or the phrase that's used there at the end of verse 15 is, how they received the promise of the eternal inheritance. How did people who lived before the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension of Christ, how did they receive the eternal inheritance of heaven, the new heaven and the new earth? How did that happen? And he builds off of that by, by changing the, the use of the word covenant from, from the way it's typically been used to describe God's relationship with man to use it in a way that we're very used to using it in our culture of a last will or a last will and testament. Now, if you have another translation, you'll actually see this in the different translations. So the King James, New King James, says where, for where there is a testament, the New American Standard has covenant there. There must also of necessity be the death of the testator, for a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Uh, the ESV translates it for where a will is. So it uses the will. So covenant, uh, testament, will. Um, it's, it's a specific application of covenant, and it's, it means exactly what we would know of as a last will, or a last will and testament. And what's the point of that? Going back up to the end of verse 15, it describes what the inheritance is. What is going to be inherited? What the one who has it will give to those to whom they choose, not because they deserve it, but because they choose to give it to them as an inheritance. And what has to take place for that inheritance to be given? The one who made the will, the one who has it, has to what? They have to die. 
They have to die. And that's the point that is being made here, that there had to be a death for this eternal inheritance to be received by those who lived, we might say, in the Old Testament days. But then the writer goes on in verse 18 and says, but this whole idea of the death of one for others to inherit a covenant, a relationship with God, is not new. For verse 18, therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. Now, when we think of first covenant, remember, it's first in reference to the Hebrew people. There are other covenants before it. It's the first covenant with the people that God called the Hebrews. And he says, that covenant was also inaugurated with blood. And then in these next few verses, it describes how that took place. And, and uh, last week, uh, and then it gets to the whole principle of the point. We'll come back and look at that in a moment. But the whole point of it is in verse 22. And according to the law, one may also almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, this is found throughout the Bible, this reality from Genesis 3, and David took us there last week to Genesis 3, all the way through to when sin is finally dealt with, and this is the principle. All things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness at all. And so here's the underlying truth. For a guilty person to live in relationship with God, an innocent must die. For a guilty person to have a relationship with God because he's holy, their sin has to be dealt with. And the way God deals with it is an innocent dies in the place of the guilty one. And this is what's called throughout the scriptures substitutionary atonement. That a person's sin is atoned for, it is forgiven, it is cleansed because a substitute stands in and bears the punishment that the guilty one deserves. Now, we could go back, as David did last week, to Genesis 3, because as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, this was brought into place by God himself there in the garden. But this book is written to Jewish believers, the Hebrews, so he doesn't take them back to Genesis 3. He takes them back to the first covenant, the giving of the law to Moses, and that's referred to there in verses 19 through verse 22. And it says there that when the first covenant was given, when all of the commandments had been spoken by Moses, something took place. Something that uh, is, is really pretty gross. So here's what happened. Moses gets all of the law from God. And he writes it in a book. And the people are told to take a bath and to assemble themselves at the base of the mountain. And so they 
are assembled there. Moses reads all of the book. And the people say, everything that God has said, we will do. Aye, aye, aye. Talk about desire that can't follow through on. But nonetheless, that's what happened. And then what happens is they slaughter some animals. And I don't know, how many of you have watched the life drain out of an animal? You slit its throat and you just watch it. It's a relatively gross experience. I know our Indonesia team was at a sacrifice of a cow this past summer, and everybody I heard from said, I couldn't watch it. Just couldn't watch it. Because literally the life just drains out, and the animal makes horrendous noises along with the gurgling. It's a very gross experience to watch the life come out of something. The blood was captured by Moses, and he used uh, hyssop and white wool, and he takes it, and he dips it in the blood, and this book of the law that he had just written, he takes and sprinkles blood on it. And then he, with all the people, takes this blood and sprinkles it on them. So that they, their garments, because they didn't have tide, are forever stained with blood. Now, I don't know, does that seem all nice and pretty to you? How would you like to walk out of here this morning with blood on you? Well, that's what happened to them, and they couldn't go home and take a shower. And it also says that when this temple tabernacle was made, that, you know, this beautiful gold and this sulfur and this amazingly beautiful wood and these white curtains, what, what happened with all those? Same thing, blood sprinkled and stained on all of it. What is going on here? What's going on is God wanted to make sure that he understood that their sin was a stench. Their sin separated them from God because God is holy. And the only way they could have a relationship with God is because an innocent gave their life. And he felt like that was such an important reminder for them to never forget that they were sprinkled with blood, and the book of the law was sprinkled with blood, and the tabernacle was sprinkled with blood, and the high priest's garments were stained with blood. They were constantly in front of their face was, the only reason you can have a relationship with God is because an innocent died in your place. That's pretty graphic, isn't it? Now, you'll notice it says in verse 22, according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And you may be wondering about that statement because so often when we quote this truth, we don't, we don't add the almost always. <laughs> uh, so what is going on with that? Well, the Old Testament law in Leviticus prescribed different offerings for people to bring based upon their economic ability. 
And so if you had some pretty good means, if you had sheep or, or, or cows, that's what you would offer. But if you didn't have that, then you could offer two turtle doves or two pigeons. Who do we know of in the Bible that offered two pigeons or two turtle doves when they went to the temple? Yeah, Joseph and Mary over Jesus when he was born. And uh, so that tells us something about their socioeconomic status in the world. But what if you couldn't even afford that? The provision of the law made a place where they could bring a grain offering mixed with oil. A grain offering mixed with oil, and that's why it would say almost always. Now, what, what do we see from this? We see a couple of things from this. Uh, most importantly, we see that salvation by faith and obedience is available to all people, rich or poor. It doesn't make any difference what your socioeconomic status is. God made a provision for the poorest people to be able to bring an offering to God by which they could recognize their need for God and that it would cost them something. The second thing that we see in this whole thing that's important to remember is that blood is representative. The blood represents the life that is given. Leviticus 17, 11 says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Or here in 922, all things are cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. The, the blood represents the, the life that was taken. And so the blood represents the death. It represents a life being snuffed out and taken on behalf of the guilty person. Um, and you can see the practical symbology reasons for that. I mean, it, how would you sprinkle people with dead bulls or dead sheep? And if it was only the blood, then you could just get some blood and not take the life of the animal. And so the blood represents the innocent life that was taken. Now, because of this language and because of even if somebody had, well, maybe you're here this morning and this whole thing about singing about blood is kind of grossing you out this morning. Um, that's part of why the early church was accused of cannibalism by the Romans because Jesus says this is the new covenant in my blood. And so there's this talk of all this blood and the work of, of how it cleanses from sin. And so the blood is representative, but it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a vital visual representative for us, isn't it? That an innocent had to die for us as guilty ones to live in relationship with God. And so as we sang beginning the service this morning, really kind of a responsive song. And so let me ask the question, and if you know and are familiar with the response, why well, you just jump in and sing it in response. 
But here's the question. What can wash away my sin? What can make me holy again? That's what makes it precious, isn't it? Because there's no other fountain available whereby our sins, which are scarlet, can be made as white as snow. And so going back to verse 15, how did people in the Old Testament, how did those who received the promise of, of life with God and, and were faithful to obey the law imperfectly, and when they didn't obey it, then they, they uh, sacrificed animals and they went to the priest and the high priest represented them every year uh, for forgiveness for the sins that were committed in the previous year. How did those people inherit their eternal promise of heaven? How did they inherit it? How did they receive the fullness of that eternal inheritance? Well, verses 15 through 17 make it clear that they only received it once Christ had been crucified. It is when Christ was crucified that the fullness of their inheritance was received. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't go to a place called paradise and and those kinds of things. But it was only when Christ was crucified. So we might say, those who trusted God before the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus were saved by Jesus Christ retroactively. And so from Adam and Eve to Joseph, the earthly dad of Jesus, they all died before that, but the work of Christ was retroactively applied to their lives. This is what The Apostle Paul says in Romans 3 about how God passed over the sins previously committed because Christ was coming and thereby he could be the just and the justifier of people. And so for all of those people, the work of Christ was applied retroactively and that's the point that's being made here. For those of us who trust Christ after his crucifixion and resurrection, we are saved by Christ proactively. That work of Christ was applied to our lives when we come to faith. He's not re-crucified. He died once for all for sins. And so in June of 1974, when I was reading through the Gospel of John and the Gospel made sense to me, And I got down on my knees and I gave my life to Christ. What Christ had done 2,000 years before was then applied to my life, so to speak. He didn't have to re-be crucified. It was done once and for all. And so what this means is everybody who gets to heaven will be there because of Jesus Christ. Everybody. And that's because Jesus Christ is the only mediator. That's the terminology that's used there in verse 15. He is the mediator 
of this new covenant. He's the only mediator between holy God and sinful people because what? He perfectly cleanses sin. Now, two weeks ago, Phoebe and Phineas, you might remember, played out a conflict. Actually, they probably didn't have to play it out. Maybe they had to play it out that morning. But a conflict, and then Christine played the role of the mediator, which is a primary role for every mom and dad, right? That's just a primary role. I want us to spend a few minutes here as we wrap up thinking about how Jesus Christ as the mediator is different than any other human mediator. Any other human mediator, different than Christine or any parent with her kids, different than the mediation that goes on between General Motors and the United Auto Workers right now. Um, he's, he's just so much different, and it's important for us, I think, to see this, to appreciate it. So here's a definition of mediators. Mediators are successful by finding common ground and building a compromise between two people or parties who are separated. And so that's what mediators do. Now, when it comes to God in His holiness and the sinfulness of who we are as people, let's ask this question. What kind of compromise can be built? What kind of compromise can there be between us and God? What would you say, Eric? None. There's no possible compromise. I mean, what are we going to give? We can't give anything towards a compromise because we're sinners. And God is absolutely holy. Can God compromise His holiness? No. There is no compromise possible. And so there is no compromise. What about common ground? Well, maybe this will move forward. What about finding common ground? Is there any common ground between sinful people and holy God? Let me put this phrase in there that will totally give it away. Before Christ, no common ground. No common ground at all. And that's the point that's going on in Hebrews. Is the death of bulls and goats or turtle doves, does that build common ground? No. Does the role of a priest who has to take a bath and dress up to present a reality of holiness that he doesn't possess, does that build common ground? No. Does a tabernacle that's made by human hands that has to be sanctified by shedding blood does that build common ground? No. I mean, it'd be like God being Catalina and here we are and we're going to run off the pier and jump to Catalina. It's too big of a separation. There is no common ground whatsoever. And it's important to let that hopelessness and that darkness and that reality to settle in because that, that's real. That's where most of our neighbors and the people that we work with are living right now. That's where people were living 
in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, or I should say, and yet, sprinkled throughout the Old Testament are these promises that God's going to do something to build common ground. So, for example, in Isaiah 9, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them, for a child will be born to us and a son will be given to us. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The miracle of all miracles is that God did what was necessary to create common ground, and he did it in the person of Jesus Christ. He did it by the Son of God becoming the Son of Man. He did it by God in the person of Christ leaving the glories of heaven and being worshipped by the angels and holding all of the cosmos together and him saying, I will become the common ground. And what did he do? His father prepared a body for him in Mary's womb and Jesus left heaven because the first place of common ground had to become that he would become a person. Why was that? Because when God created Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2, we're told that he created them in the image and likeness of himself, meaning they had some of his attributes in very finite ways where God had them infinitely. So people were created to be able to know things. They were be able to, to love. They were be able to, to have a sense of justice. They were be able to have mercy. All of those attributes in a very finite way, God gave to us and hardwired into us. But what was the unique way that Adam and Eve and people are different than God? He created them to live in a body. In a body. And that's why the great commandment is, don't you ever make any images of God. God doesn't have any images. And so what did Jesus Christ have to do? Philippians chapter 2 tells us that he did not regard his equality with God and living, exercising his full divinity, that he was okay not depending upon that. When he was made in the likeness and image of man, and he became a man. And he humbled himself to do that. And he didn't just humble himself to become a person in a body, a body that experienced everything that human bodies experience, a body in which we're told in Hebrews 5.15, he experienced every type of temptation to a greater degree than any other person, yet without sin. A body that we're told was scourged and beaten and placed a crown of thorns on and was mocked and ridiculed, a body that had to carry his own 
instrument of torture, the cross to its place on Golgotha Hill, and a body that was nailed to the cross, suspended between holy God and sinful men, he became the common ground. There was no common ground until the Father sent the Son and the Son came. And how appropriate that Jesus, the Christ, as the perfect mediator, was suspended between holy God and sinful man as he became the common ground. And so we never enter into heaven by being good. We don't enter into heaven by helping others. We don't enter into heaven by reading our Bibles. We don't enter into heaven by obeying what God's word says, by going to church, giving money, being a great kid, great parent. We only enter into heaven because of the common ground of Jesus the mediator, because he perfectly cleanses from all sin. He alone is the mediator. Now, why is it important to keep rehearsing this reality? Because as I said earlier, it's easy for us to take this for granted. It's easy for us, when we get ready to go to bed at night or whenever it happens for you, to think about the thoughts that we should not have thought that day. Or to think about some of the things we said or didn't say and think, ah, that was sinful or even some of our actions, and to simply say, thank you, Father, for your forgiveness. And that's certainly right and appropriate, but it misses the gravity of the stench of our sin and the greatness and goodness of the love of God in creating common ground in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not wrong to say that, but it's important to just periodically drive this reality deeper and deeper home. I've often wondered if it'd be helpful just to get stained with blood and walk around. It's just a constant reminder of what it took. And I think we also need to keep having this driven into our hearts because it's just easier to blame other people it's easy to be oblivious to our own sinful thoughts and blow them off. It's easy to create value systems that aren't based upon who we are in Christ. It's based upon our ethnicity or my maleness or femaleness for some of you ladies or, or our jobs or families or whatever, our political views. And this just kind of doesn't make them irrelevant, but it just puts them in the right place. It just puts them in the right place. I, I've thought many times over the years that it would be helpful for us to cultivate the depth of our sinfulness and the depth of how sinful we are as people and this amazing cleansing work of Christ. <laughs> You're going to laugh at this and hope it's not going to happen. But, uh, but I've often thought, you know, it would be so helpful if on a Sunday morning as we're sitting in church, all of a sudden by a work of the Spirit, each of our sins that morning were visible 
Yeah, oh no, yeah. They're just visible. We can see them spelled out, and we can look at other people, and other people can look at us. I mean, what would be there for you this morning? What kind of sins would be there this morning? You don't have to name any of them. We don't want to, we don't want to actually apply this. But just think about it. And, and what would happen when you looked at the person next to you in the pew, whether you knew them or not? I mean, there, it would just, it, wouldn't there be a huge equalizing that goes on? And wouldn't there be a common sense of shame? And there, wouldn't there be a, I don't know why I'm throwing any stones at you. I mean, I think it would just be a phenomenally humbling experience that would be so helpful to us to see that reality and then to have the Lord say to us, what can wash away your sins and for you to say, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And to instantly experience them all disappearing and being clothed in the full righteousness of Christ. Because that's real. That's the reality that we live in. And boy, what a difference it would make in our relationships with people, don't you think? What a difference it would make in the way we live. And that's the reality of the whole deal. Now, I've even thought about what it'd be like if all of our sins that have already been committed and all of our future sins were there. Hoo-wee! Can you imagine? We're a bloody, stinky lot to a holy God, aren't we? And yet, with all of that depravity and with all of that wickedness and with all of those acts of rebellion towards God and hateful things towards our fellow man, the truth is still there. What can wash away our sins? What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the What can make us holy again? Let's stand together and sing this last refrain. Whoops. Oh, precious is the blow that makes me white as snow other fount I know nothing but the blood of Jesus why don't you just respond out loud to God because of that reality just say whatever you want to say to him just go ahead and say it out loud all at once Now turn to two or three people next to you and say, wow, you look really good in the cleansing of Christ.
All right, we've got some people that will be down front. If you want to talk or pray with someone, uh, you're welcome to do that. Here we are. If you'd like to give to the ministry of the Gideons, they're out in the lobby. Feel free to drop a gift in there. It goes right to the Gideons. It doesn't go through us as a church body at all. But boy, are we blessed people or whatever. It's an amazing thing of what God has done so that we can have a full-fledged relationship with Him all week long, all the way into eternity. May we live like that this week, amen? amen? And may we tell some people about this. This is the most amazing deal. And uh, so, go in the fullness of being white as snow because of the work of Christ. God bless you.